most of those people that we hold up as being the gurus, including like Elon Musk and Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Richard Branson, they're all neurodiverse. You mentioned Seth Godin. He's got ADHD. He loves his ADHD. He attributes his creativity to it. You know, and so and and so and I kind of laugh. This will put off a lot of listeners here, especially people who are neurotypical, because we've got all these people who are trying to be like these gurus. They actually can't. You and I can, because we're neurodiverse, right? This podcast is proudly sponsored by the Actionable Community Building Newsletter, the ACB for short. This includes the summarized golden nuggets mined from podcast guests, books, articles, and the live experience that I'm gaining from helping thought leaders, educators, creatives, and contribution-centered entrepreneurs build their thriving communities. I don't want to give you more information and fluff in your email box. Why? As I'm sick of being bombarded with big promises and a lot of information in my email and then just unsubscribing later on. I want to give you insightful ideas that generate new actions which lead you to the ultimate result of building a thriving community. My intention is to post one every week, yet if I feel it won't provide you the value I believe it should, I just won't send it through. Simple as that. So if you'd like new ideas, strategies, actions, and results for your community, then click down below in the podcast description and the email will get sent straight through to you. Hey there, you awesome human being, and welcome to the Community and Tribe Building Podcast. So you could meet anyone, a billionaire, and you have something that they don't. And that is a really important thing to recognize that if you can find what you can give them that they would see as valuable, you will get anyone in your community. This podcast is specifically designed for thought leaders, educators, contribution-based entrepreneurs, creators, authors, and people who are looking to share a message and build a community around it, attract a community, or join one. Seek out those tribes where you do fit in. I reckon enjoy the ride of people going, those people are a bit weird, and you go, that's all right, because they're my people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because there's nothing wrong with weird. Nothing at all. That helps you contribute exponentially so that you and I can live in a better and more connected world. I don't own this thing. And it's the people that own it. And it's the people's movement. It's not my movement. This is done by having deep, fun, and curious conversations. I want to write something about scaling intimacy and people being like, absolutely not. I want people to react to the paradox and be like, no one does that. Tell Mm. me a good example of that. With leading experts within community building, understanding the software platforms behind it, understanding communication experts, human behavioral scientists, and much, much more. Community drives are foundational to our like human existence and the way we're coded. That's why we do find them so powerful when we experience them. We are going to be deep diving into community and tribe building on three different levels. The personal, the professional, and the technological. I'm your host, Liam Hounsell, and I'm super excited to jump into this. I wish I'd listened to this podcast five years ago. That's why it exists now. (laughs) (laughs) I am super stoked today to have Callum McCurdy on the podcast. Callum is a speaker, author, mentor, and facilitator specializing in workplace dynamics and behavior. With a successful 20-year career assisting leaders and teams to develop radically authentic workplaces by leveraging their uniqueness right across Australasia. Proudly dyslexic and ADHD positive, Callum champions organizations to think differently about different thinking and views neurodivergent people as the innovative super workforce of the future. 
Callum speaks at industry conferences, facilitates high impact workshops, trains teams, and mentors professionals who are looking to reconnect with purpose in their workplaces. He's the author of The HR Catalyst, a guide to the new practice of leading HR, published in 2019 and a contributing author to the 2020 Amazon bestseller, What the Hell Do We Do Now? An Enterprise Guide to COVID-19 and Beyond. It is a privilege to have you here today, Callum, and I'm super excited to jump into it. And I just wanted to start off with one of the first questions that I was sort of most interested in is your idea of radical authenticity. And one of the things is you've worked in a lot of different organizations, companies, communities. I'm interested, is there any sort of organization or place that you've been a part of that you sort of felt embodies that, that essence of authenticity? Oh, well, big question to, to leap into. And thanks for having me, Liam. This is uh, cool. I'm looking forward to a, a great chat, actually. The concept of a radically authentic workplace, it embodies my approach to what I think a great culture should be. And so there's sort of three facets to it. One is um, that we have a catalyst ethos. And by that, I mean, so the catalyst ethos is we've got to serve the people we work with before we can serve our customers. Because I think customer service is kind of capped or limited in terms of how well we can treat external people. So people who come and use our services, and that's capped by how well we treat each other. So that's sort of a, based on an interest and paying attention to each other and based on kindness and empathy within the organization. So that's, that's one facet um, or aspect. The second one is that we need to embrace different thinking. And not just embrace the thinking, but embrace the people who do the different thinking. So this is where the, that sort of neurodiversity mental aspect comes into what I think workplaces could and should tap into quite a lot more. I think there's a, there's a cohort of employees who, who hide their true selves. And that's because they don't feel like they fit in. They don't, don't know why they're, they're a wee bit different. Maybe their ideas get stifled because people can't, don't get them you know, when they join the dots. But these are people who come about problems a wee bit differently. So they experience the world a wee bit differently. And I think that's an untapped resource in there. So we've got to think differently about different thinking. That's the second thing. And the third bit is we need to develop leaders who are unafraid of leading difference. Because what we've tended to do with this whole sort of ethos of recruiting for fit is we've developed this pool. The teams are full of people who are, and this is not everywhere, but generally what managers try to do through the recruitment process is develop people who are like them mm -hmm. because they're easy to manage and it makes sense, right? So, but I'm thinking that what we need to do is look at where are people a wee bit differently, different. So in terms of the, the team, maybe when it comes to recruiting, managers could look at where, where do we need to be more different rather than where are we the same? And so we need leaders who are unafraid of leading difference. Now, the difference I'm talking about isn't necessarily about gender or ethnicity, et cetera, but it's about, again, that different thinking, people who experience things differently. So taps into neurodiversity. So that's sort of the three aspects of a, a radically authentic workplace. Radical because uh, not many organizations are doing this. Authentic because it's enabling people to be their true selves rather than kind of leave your personality at the door or feel like you need to fit in by being something that you think other people want you to be, which mm -hmm. may not be correct. But, and I think there's a lot, of, a lot of effort and emotion 
and energy tied up within lots of individuals, within lots of organizations, trying to be something that they think other people want them to be. And that's mm. not necessarily the case. And it's all based in the workplace. Now, your question was, do I know many that do that well? No, not really. Mm -hmm. <laughs> to be perfectly um, honest, I think, <laughs> some, I think some do aspects of that. But this is also a new take on uh, diversity and inclusion, because for, for decades now, we've looked at we've we've looked or trying to solve you know the gender pay gap uh, or having more diverse looking teams mm. and organizations right with and and I, I see that kind of as 20th century diversity and inclusion it's stuff we should have tackled we should have solved that already and uh and we haven't because the powers that be don't want to because that doesn't mm. serve them right now that's kind of a bit of a a bold statement i reckon but there's they're easy things to solve and we should do that because it's the right thing to do, you know, to have a balance of male and female in all tiers of mm. organizations and, and, and people who don't even assign or ascribe to uh, any particular gender label. Right. And, and same with ethnic diversity, it should, this, it should be really easy to mm. be a representative sample of either your customer base or society as a whole. And yet for some reason, most of most organizations still aren't, aren't doing it and there's really no reason why we shouldn't except we just don't want to mm. so what i'm talking about in terms of the diversity is hidden diversity uh, diversity of the mind diversity of thought and really it's differences in how the brain's wired and so as a result of that how people experience mm. the world people with dyslexia adhd autism are the big three but there's a whole whole there's a vast sort of spectrum of neurodiversity and it's an umbrella term as well and it's probably not even the, the right term because we're all neurodiverse. Nobody has the same brain, right? But we're more neurodivergent. And I think there's some people who sit on certain spectrums and classifications that we have thought they've had something wrong with them or have been broken but it, because they don't fit in. But actually, it's the system that's broken. And these people have heaps to offer and there's a whole lot of untapped genius. I'm going to stop there because I reckon you must have another question to, <laughs> to ask. <laughs> no, nah, that was, uh, yeah, no, that was good. A good practice in being present. <laughs> Righto. It's good. Nah. So yeah, I found it really interesting. You mentioned dyslexia and as I was um, dyslexic, I remember reading through some of your posts and I found it, I guess, just really sort of comforting and sort of cool to see because I've definitely started to notice that sometimes I can see things like almost backwards. So like, I'll, I'll definitely see like a word or a letter, then I'll jumble it around and mix it around. But sometimes yeah. that's been really useful for like product ideas yeah. or something like this. Cause like, okay, if everyone's doing a product like this, if we flip it the opposite, then it yeah. like acts as like a pattern interrupt. So yeah. I really, yeah, I, I really just, yeah, I love that point. The one point that I was really curious about is like, how do you feel people feel seen, you know? Cause it's like, it becomes like a cliche to to be yourself, but I, I definitely think in yeah. teams or organizations where or like a sense of a group where I've been like, I can just like, I just feel like my shoulders drop down and I just relax. Yeah. yeah. And you, you talked about the energy that it requires to keep those, I guess, shoulders up that front on. Like, yep. is there any steps that you go through when you walk into a team where you, how do we sort of bridge the gap between that mask and sort of being yourself, you know? Are you, are you talking about, are you, are you asking me, do I, is there anything that I do 
yeah uh, I guess when I walk I, into a team yeah I guess it could be something that you do or something that you tell the team to do it could be could be either yeah look I, so you 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 might get that you might get this with your dyslexia Liam because yeah. the, the weird one of the weird upshots of dyslexia is um, that we tend to have quite a high or a higher than usual empathy register right mm -hmm. like we feel empathy we feel other people's emotions we kind of see mm -hmm. how people turn up so i see how people uh, come into a room and mm -hmm. i've always done that i've always noticed that and what i've also noticed from a very like when i was about five i noticed that not a lot of other people did that like lots of my friends and their mm -hmm. families and parents and that they would be running around oblivious to other people and how other people how other people were like how they were being and I was I'm like I was super curious about that because mm. I was like how are people do they do they not notice this or do they notice this and they just don't care like they just don't see where people and it's not about happiness or sadness but it's all those other sort of emotions that are in the middle like mm. the ones that sometimes are hard to put your finger on like I notice all of them and and I I use that in a room so you, your question is how can uh, teams do that really really cool activity that I like to use first time I meet a team is when we when we get in the room and let's just say it's it's a boring bog standard boardroom so we're mm -hmm. sitting around a, a table and where most people have their meetings or workshops or whatever else and so we're sitting around that and I'll I'll ask okay what, what does a great day look like so if we get to um, four o'clock so jump forward to four o'clock today mm -hmm. imagine yourself there and go uh, what do you not want to regret leaving the day having not done sort of thing huh, the double negative in there. yeah so so what 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 don't what do you want to regret and then let, let's make sure we come back to that and then once we've sort of listed those sort of things down there then I like to play a game of it's kind of being in somebody else's shoes so mm. everybody around the table has to be somebody else around the table and, and say what they think that person is uh, most worried about, mm. most apprehensive about, um, perhaps most looking forward to. Just You're just putting yourself in somebody else's shoes. It does not matter if you get it right or wrong. In fact, the chance mm. of you getting it exactly right is near on impossible. But what it does is it says, oh, it says to the other person, they, they're trying to figure out what I'm like. Mm -hmm. And it says, what do I know about that person? But also gives the person they're pretending to be the opportunity to go, yeah, kind of that, but actually it's more of this. And so we actually, because you know, when you, you if you're ever running, facilitating anything, you go, okay, what are you, what are you most worried about? Nobody's going to speak their mind. Like nobody's mm. actually going to be thinking. But if <laughs> you actually true, get to pretend, yeah. So yeah. if you get to pretend to be somebody else and that other person goes, yeah, it's kind of that, but actually it's more like this, you get that question answered without the awkwardness yeah and so all you're doing is you're influencing the dynamic in the room and 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 that's that's really most of my job mm -hmm. is to do that sort of thing and and then and as you notice and you'll do this too i'm sure because i can kind of read some stuff off your face and if you if you talk about what you noticed when the person was saying yeah it kind of this but actually it's more like this like what people do with their face and when the facilitator picks those up that's gold and then it's immediately we've got right we're in this room and it's pretty safe yeah and this guy or this person who is sort of leading this conversation he's picking up on the stuff that you nobody ever comments about mm -hmm. and so that just it, it kind of gives people permission to go huh 
like the shoulders drop thing mm. that you talked about? That's that's what it does. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah, that's that's a great activity. No, thank you for sharing. Hey, can uh, I yeah. just ask a question? With your dyslexia, yeah. I, do you have an issue with left and right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I do. You do? I do. So like when I was driving the first time, I, I, yeah, I haven't actually, I didn't think about it as a dyslexia, but I've always noticed like even when I was a little kid, like kicking a soccer ball, it would be like, oh, I'm kicking with my left foot. And I'd be, no, no, you're kicking with your right here. You know, so it's like, yeah, no, I always, yeah, I right. always found that. Okay. Yeah, because I don't, I don't have a, I, I'm dyslexic as well, and I don't have a left and right issue, but I have a real problem with clockwise and anti-clockwise. Mm. Huh, so I can, yeah, it's really weird. And the only way I know what way clockwise is is the way you go around a roundabout. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, of course, I can see a, a clock, hold that in my he- head, and watch it. But as soon as I look away, it, that's that's kind of gone. So my working memory isn't there. And the other, you know, you were talking about an object. So I see, I see the clock. I can see the clock you know, face side, the back of it, the top, bottom, and both sides all mm. at once. And you go, I think that's why I get mixed up with letters and words and mm. and everything else. Anyway, I digress. That's cool. I guess, I guess with that and with dyslexia as well and bringing like the inclusion or the superpower behind it, like mm. I'm sure a lot of dyslexics, even if they're listening or someone else, like you've written three books or in the process of writing, I guess a third now. How have you found that process, you know, from because like at school, like spelling and, and reading and everything else was like necessarily mm. like my worst sort of my worst criteria. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, good, good question. So this one, that one there, if I get the HR yeah, catalyst. So yeah. I wrote that in about seven or eight days and I wrote it on planes. So it was a matter of and and what that really was, was. I think an outcome or an output of my ADHD. So mm. when with ADHD, it's attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. So it says that you're broken, right? There's mm. actually no deficit of attention, none whatsoever. If anything, ADHD is about having a deficit of the, an ability to regulate or pay attention to one thing at a time. Like mm. I pay attention to lots of things all at the same time, which is why we're always distracted, right? Mm. Um, but it does mean that also, that if I'm interested and if I'm passionate about something, I can hyper-focus mm-hmm. and I can get more done in two hours than most people do in a day. But likewise, I could procrastinate and do nothing for two weeks, you know, mm-hmm. if I'm not interested. But with writing the book, like I, I just powered through that. Now, the other one was a, a chapter in a book that we wrote with 17 other authors across Australia, Ireland, the U.S., and so I just wrote a chapter in that and I powered through that and wrote it in a couple of hours. And of course, there's wow. some editing in that as well. So I can really power through some stuff by hyper-focus. And that's one mm. of the, the myths about ADHD is that we can't focus. We can, as long as we kind of know the why and we give a damn about mm-hmm. it. But the, the second thing is also, so I knew I was dyslexic at the time I wrote that book. The, I didn't know I have, had ADHD, so I wasn't diagnosed uh, then, mm-hmm. but also I, I hid my dyslexia and mm-hmm. all the, the hangups and the micro failures that um, I had every day. I had that from the entire world, including my family. So what I would do is late at night when I'm um, writing and sort of trying to proofread the chapters that I was writing, I would have to print things out to proofread them. 
And the way I do that is I've always had, not knowing, not really having um, a diagnosis of dyslexia early on, but for, for decades, I've used cutout bits of card <laughs> and I put them like that over the book. And yeah. I just I just pull that down the page. So it isolates a line. And it's just a little trick that I came up with a very long time ago. And it just helped me read. So mm. it, it started at school. I would put a, a ruler um, underneath each line and go like that. But then having more words above, getting bigger and bigger on the page, that just confused me as well. And so I just used cut out bits of card. Oh, and good. I've like that's I've used that for decades. And that's how I would proof the book mm. just by doing that manually having hidden my inability to read like i i get i get mucked up on menus ordering at cafes and, and restaurants but i hid that from my family as well i tend to uh, be the last person to order and i'll order something else that sounds nice that somebody's ordered mm -hmm. or i'll order something off the specials that the the waiter has talked about so yeah, yeah. anyway i'm all, all over that now because yeah. there's some, some massive potential in, in dyslexia, I reckon. Like even this one guy that I was speaking to who was involved with uh, Smart Cities, Peter Orr, he was speaking about like just, yeah, I think he was dyslexic in the way that he processed things. And he had this book called The Gift of Dyslexia, which I started reading, which was yeah. very, I guess, very, yeah, very interesting to see the, the dynamics and how people can, can feel included yeah. with it. Yeah. Well, I mean, so we, we struggle with, you know, with we struggle with learning because of the way we're taught. So we're not, we're actually amazing learners. Like dyslexics are incredible learners. We just learn uh, differently to what's taught by the masses in sort of mass education. But if we get to imagine, if we get to play, to build, if we get to like, even as you talked about, Liam, like manipulating things mm. um, in our mind, lots of people can't do that. So if I said to you, Imagine an apple, a red juicy apple, and take a bite out of, take a bite out of it. So you can see that, right? Yeah. And and then you go, well, look at that from the back, and you can imagine that. Yeah. I imagine. Yeah. yeah. And there's no bite taken out of it. Some people can't do that, and I'm like, Hattie, what do you mean? It's like this because so we can manipulate things 3D. It's like, okay, look at the top of the apple now. Now jump straight to the bottom of it, and huh. turn it around. Like, it's instant, right? And there are some people that can't do that, like neurotypical people. Some people can't do that. And I'm like, wow, man, sucks to be you. So we don't need software that engineers use to manipulate stuff because we're, like on, on a screen, because we can already do that, right? Yeah. yeah. There you go. But, yeah. And that's wow. useful. Because we, then we can go, okay, well, okay, so not everybody's going to either design the perfect piece of fruit or a bridge or a building or that sort of thing. But what we can do is go, that, that immediately plays into, okay, if you were to, if you were moving into a new house and you want to think about decorating that, like, mm. boom, I bet you can imagine what that place would be like, mm. yeah? And you could walk through that house in your head. Some people can't do that. And I'm like, that's awful. <laughs> because, <laughs> I know. Because we're already there. Like, mm -hmm. And it's, it's just this ability to 3D process everything. And you go, okay, you put, a, um, put a brown chair in the corner and go, mm, that doesn't look right there. Take it away. And it's gone instantly, right? You don't need it there. Or you might ruminate on it and it might stay there mm. hazily as well. But 
we, we can do all this sort of stuff. And it's that processing that we can be really, really practical. Okay, plan, plan a trip or, or one actor. Have you heard of the Marshmallow Challenge? It's quite, a, quite an old. Yeah, I've heard of the Marshmallow Challenge. Yeah, so you've got 20 sticks of dry spaghetti, you've got some string, some tape, and a marshmallow, and you have to build a tower in, I think you have 18 minutes. Oh, no, I've heard of a different one, I think. Yeah, not the one, no, not the other one. The, 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 the instant gratification one, you know. Where yeah, you, no. No, not that one. Yeah. This one sounds yeah. interesting. Yeah, so this one's about building a structure that will hold the weight of a marshmallow mm-hmm. using only those resources and doing it in 18 minutes. And... It's neurodiverse people, people especially with ADHD and or dyslexia who are able to imagine what that structure could look like and build to that rather than necessarily do an iterative process and fail at an attempt. And so you go, okay, that's just an activity or it's a game, but actually it can be really, really useful and practical and it's great for team building. Mm. And it's a way of showing skills that that some people don't necessarily always get to demonstrate at work or at school yeah so we're great we're amazing we're just told we're not (laughs) yeah so how do you how do you think about it then when you see the team with and say someone's been in this role and they're trying to fit into it how do you how do you facilitate someone on I guess making that change to where they actually I I remember through reading some of them having a stalk um, of your website looking at you use the word natural a lot and the ability to go with what we naturally, where we naturally yeah. want to go. Yeah. And that got me really curious. How do I tell when I'm going where I naturally want to go versus where I'm being a bit lazy and don't want to do the hard work? Oh, yeah. Oh, no. So great question. Really hard to answer because I think it's about figuring out like what is you. So I'm 45. I found out when I was 42 that I had ADHD and I go, so you get over the, oh, what could I have become? Blah, blah, blah. Woe is me. And I go, actually, what is, who is me? Like, who am I? What, what is this concept of me? Because I've, not only do I live in this world that's imagined in my brain all the time, like even, like I've experienced this conversation we're having this morning and yesterday, like I've already imagined it. Like I don't know what we're going to cover, but I kind of imagined what it was like. And I think that's just a matter of me feeling okay and getting ready as well. I've created a whole lot of hacks and workarounds in order to survive. So firstly, hide stuff that I struggle with, Mm -hmm. um, but also cope as well. And everyday little things like making my breakfast to using an ATM to booking an Uber, those sort of things. Like I struggle with lots of those things Mm -hmm. and have had to work out my own ways of doing them. And then I go, okay, well, how much of that is me doing stuff naturally and how much of it is me having to make stuff up either on the fly or repeating routines and and habits. And then I go, actually, it doesn't matter because uh, everything's all made up. We're all just telling stories and each day we get to reinvent ourselves as well. And so when it comes to the workplace, we go, okay, how do you allow people to be real? It's about how do we create a culture where it's all good, Mm. totally safe, all fine to go. I have no idea what you just said, Liam. Can you explain it either a bit slower? Can you use some different language? Can you give me an example? As opposed to sitting there and watching everybody else nodding like they understand and go. <laughs> so true. Yeah, I've, I've just got to go along with this because nobody else, nobody else is as dumb as me. <laughs> so if I'm going to ask, hey, Liam, can you just slow down and can you reframe that a little bit? I'm going to look like an idiot, right? And yet, 
the majority of people, not the majority, at least a third, I would say, just on average, just to grab a, a number, mm-hmm. about a third of people are also sitting around the table going, I wish someone would stop him and say, can you just reframe that? Because I'm too scared to. We're going to cut out that the fear of going, I don't know what you said, or I made a mistake, or I forgot to do this, or I didn't deliver on that. Rather than try to be superheroes, go, actually, what can we... What can we do? Like, what are you great at, Liam, that I'm not so good at that you can do? And likewise, what can I do? And I'm going to use the term better than you, but not in a competitive sense, mm-hmm. in a sense to go, how do we both do better together as opposed to trying to be superstars and compete against each other? Because mm. that's what a team's for. Mm-hmm. And often in, work, in workplaces, we use sporting analogies to, to reference teams. Yeah. And no team at work should be like a, a sport like it doesn't make sense a lot lots of teams especially corporate teams are people who have the same jobs they're just a collection of the same role and if you imagine if they were to to act as a sports team it wouldn't work mm-hmm. what we do need to do is go how do we make it really safe to to be who you are to ask the dumb questions like one of one activity i love to get to uh, i love to do in workshops is to get to stupid because there's always somebody who's asking the stupid who's afraid to ask the stupid questions Mm. we say there's no such thing as a stupid question well there are stupid questions and we should get them on the table because the last thing you want in a team especially at work is for people to leave a meeting with the stupid question unasked because they're going to then ruminate and dwell on that and not get on with what they're meant to get on with because it's like i'm still stuck on I'm pretty sure. Biggest block. Um, yeah, yeah totally, totally. Like, get that out of the way. Like, what's the stupidest thing we can do? What's the dumbest question we can ask? Just go for it. Get it all done. Best ideas come from dumb questions as well, I reckon. But also, if we make that safe, then we can then, as a team, go, how do we make the best use of us? Because here's one truth that I know, this, and this is irrefutable. Nowhere on the planet is the team that whoever's watching and listening to this the team that there are nowhere on the planet is that team replicated anywhere. So there's massive potential in that. And we're not unlocking that because we're trying to be too much of the same. So how are we trying to make the best use of our differences? That, and that's, that's sort of an aspect of one of the team models that I, I use is are we actually leveraging the fact that we have a whole lot of difference here as opposed to spending lots of time and energy trying to be the same and being equal and trying to be um, competent and, you know, best in each other's eyes? Like, bugger that. Just mm. get to, like, what are, how, how do we make the best use of us? Because as soon as one person leaves, the us changes, somebody else comes in, the us changes. Like, how do we make the best use of that? And not many teams are actually thinking about, okay, how are we using this? How are we using this difference? And that starts with building trust and making it safe to be who you are. Yeah. So again, comes back to leaders needing to be unafraid of leading difference. Go, okay, where are we different? And, and how are we two the same? Just asking questions like that simple i reckon <laughs> and that yeah no and then that leads into it yeah it just makes me think like even when you're saying we need difference like if if everyone was just like you can't make a cake by just having flour yeah we're um, trying to build like teams or organizations a lot of the time with just flour <laughs> yeah yuck yeah <laughs> like how, how bland and dull and boring is that mm. yeah hmm. yeah good analogy actually yeah so 
I'm, I'm curious, Callum, because when I was looking at some of, I guess, some of your, your other material that you had, one of them mm -hmm. was you used to do retreats and different organizations like this, and you get, uh, you get called to go to speaking events. How did that first get started? How did you take your like sort of passion for, for deeper connection and facilitating better conversations to actually monetizing it and commercializing mm. it? had what well, sort of it's morphed over time over the years and i think also the the beauty of feeling like i never really fitted in at work regardless of how great the workplace was and my colleagues were is that i kind of always had this yearning or desire drive to work for myself mm. fundamentally i think i'm unemployable and i because i'm always like I, i'm i get itchy feet right and i'm i'm restless and I like the diversity of the work that I do. So the beauty is I get to work with people I like in places I, I like doing work that I really love, right? Mm -hmm. And and I have it's taken a lot of work and a lot of effort, and a lot of missed opportunities, a lot of mistakes, but I've created all of that. There's massive privilege in that to be able to go, yep, I'll work with you and we'll do this. And no, I won't do that. And But I've created that and... It does come back from, I'll come back to desire to champion, I guess, the underdog. Like I think there's, regardless of whether it's neurodiverse, neurotypical, everybody, somebody, nobody at all, I think there's, there are people who are left behind and I hate that. Like I've got a really high justice sort of um, threshold and I always back the underdog. And, and I think part, partly that's, that's because I've always sort of felt like one as well. Um, a bit of an outlier, an outsider, don't really fit in that sort of thing. But I quite like that. Like I'm proud of that. I think there's a there's a cool coolness to to not fitting in. But I see people seeing that as a negative, and I want to help them see that as actually that's your superpower. And so I love to speak about that. So the speaking came about really from, and yeah, I'm trying to think of an answer to that one, actually, Liam, in terms of the speaking, because I don't know. I remember being in primary school and freezing on stage, not being able to speak. I remember not being able to, even, even early in my working career, mm -hmm. not being able to speak in public. And then I found that when I'm, because, and, and what my fear was, is I thought it was all about having to memorize a script. Mm. And as soon as, soon as I realized that I actually just need to talk from the heart about things that I'm passionate about and I can talk forever. And memorize, so memorizing the script was useless for me, but I thought that's what speaking was. But as soon as I got rid of that uh, concept, speaking became part of my bread and butter. And so I helped that, I use that to help promote the mission that I'm on and the cause and what I'm uh, trying to do and get in front of people as well to then get into organizations and, and run these programs based on that radically authentic workplace concept. And so it's kind of been iterative over time from a desire to work for, for myself, but also in the way that I think I've had and having a background in human resources and uh, leadership development, culture development for about, you know, 20 years now, I've had this, I, I see gaps in, in models and having used other people's stuff and I've thought I could do that better or I reckon if we added this or we combine these two things, then that makes that better as well. And so I've always wanted to make things better. So my IP and the, the it, it comes from a fair bit of experience, but once you get that 
I think it takes a bit of courage and conviction to go, this is my take on this. And I think it's going to be valuable to these people. Do you want to have a, have a chat about that? And that's essentially the work that I do. And so it's, it's, not, in, it's not unique, but I think it's quite different to what a lot of people are doing as well. And, and, and it just still morphs over time. Like I get, I get to test my work with the people I work with as well. And that's not, a, not an abusive relationship. That's about making that real and fit those people. Yeah, that's a, that's a real waffle answer to your question. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, I don't know. If, I feel if you answer it probably too linearly, it's probably not truthful, you know, but that's like, yeah. there was an iterative process. Well, it's all, it's, it's too, yeah, I agree because I think it's also too staged and practiced. And I think really, if I was uh, honest, because you talked about, facilitating and speaking and and some other things and where where did they come from they came from different places mm-hmm. so yeah it's not like I, I made the decision I'm going to facilitate and I'm going to speak on this like I have a, I've always been facilitating actually if I really do come back to that I remember in what we used to call the sixth form which I think is year 12 we'd read things like uh, day of the triffids in 1984 and um, one fly over the cuckoo's nest and these these horrific books that i couldn't really read or couldn't read to keep up at a rate that kept up with the class and we'd have to talk in these little groups and i never read the books and i facilitated conversations in those groups about the book so i would always go last in terms of talking about it and i would ask questions to tease out the plot and the characters and all what what was going on in the books from my classmates so that they thought i read the book but also the teacher thought i read the book so i actually learned the books through my classmates i feel like and i'm getting exposed was, now callum I, I had a very <laughs> very similar experience yeah it, like and it's just savvy it's like oh shit i can't read these books i'm really going to struggle so what am i going to do and and i just learned the art or created the art for me of asking better questions and that's all facilitating is that's all coaching is and i think i started doing that when i was 16 right and so that's where the facilitating comes from yeah <laughs> Yeah, so you did that too, huh? Yeah, I, I definitely felt it within groups, especially if it was reading or literature. I would I would try avoid at all costs going home and actually reading the book. But the interesting yeah. thing is now when I when I read, as you said, like the first book that I fully read cover to cover was Andre Agassi's book Open. And yeah. that because I just I just loved um, tennis at the time and then that's where oh. I wanted to go down. But any other book, like my parents always used to try and incentivize me, Liam, it's good to read, it's good to read. And I saw Andre Agassi's book. I was like, now nah, I'm going to read. <laughs> You're in. So, so this is the thing, like, because you had a passion and a real interest to it, right? Mm-hmm. And so you could stick to it. So when the going gets tough, you could, you could stick into it, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas if it's something about, I don't know, read something that you're, you're not at all interested in, like it's hard work. Mm-hmm. And we go, okay, I can look for every reason not to do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's true. Cool. So I guess you spoke about, and I've definitely felt that before, is like that coolness of not fitting in. Because mm-hmm. I guess I felt it when I came from Zimbabwe to Australia originally. Yeah. And then that that sort of came through. And I definitely had like, I felt like I had a bit of a chip on my shoulder. Like, oh, you've got a different accent. It's a, like, I kind of like that difference. But then yeah. I kind of also had like a clash at the same time of like wanting to belong, wanting to connect yeah. deeper. So it's like, hmm. I'm curious where you've had it potentially in your life where you felt that that belonging or that connection like which sort of groups of people or how you mm. I sort of came to feel that yeah I love that there's so much going through my head as you're speaking then Liam about uh, what popped into my head was this word choice 
So you get to you get to choose, like, do you fit in? Do you not fit in? And how do you play that as well in terms of like your background and your accent as well? Because some people will love it. And some sometimes I imagine you'll get a bit tired of people loving it. And there's also an opportunity there for people to abuse that and for you to be like the token different person as well. And I don't, I don't, I don't get that because look at me, like I'm like my, my forehead grows every week. I'm losing my hair. Um, I'm middle-aged. I'm white. I am male. Like I am born into privilege. Like all I had to do was be born and I'm already streaks ahead of half the population through doing nothing at all. Right. And so a lot of people assume that I've got absolutely nothing to talk about in terms of diversity, the diversity of what goes on in my my head, which makes me part of a minority group that I think is valid because we've invalidated, that's a word, people who have similar experiences, similar brain wiring to me in the the workplace. Like we do that in society, but I'm focused on, on the workplace. And so where have I, where do I feel like I've fitted in? I think it's definitely... Nowadays, when I work more with with people who are neurodiverse, in particular, people who have um, ADHD and dyslexia, Mm. when I'm talking with those, there's something about us. I was talking to someone, filming an episode of the podcast, my podcast, Mm -hmm. um, last week in Wellington. And it was the first, usually they're um, online, but this is the first time I was in the room. I had never met this guy before. And there was just something that clicked. And I think with people who have um, ADHD, maybe with dyslexia as well, I'm not sure, but there's something, like there's a connection there, there's a, there's an instant comfort, there's a, we kind of know banter, Mm. we know facial expressions, there's a, there's a, an added level of connection, which is automatic, and I think that's where I feel like I fit in, I did a webinar about four or five months ago with a bunch of school kids at a school that is purposefully set up for neurodiverse kids so kids who have not fitted in the system and I was almost in tears as these incredibly clever kids were asking questions that tripped me up all the time but they were I could hear them whispering in the background when I was telling my story going he's he's talking about me and saying things like and, and you could see them leaning forward and lighting up going and like for the first time they could hear an adult talk about their experiences as opposed to parents saying you just need to dampen that down or calm that down or just try and fit in that sort of thing Mm -hmm. and so with a bunch of of 11 12 13 14 year olds like I felt like I fitted in and I was like this is awesome like that's a there's a tribal element to that Mm -hmm. I'm part of a, a group have been for about four years it's called thought leaders business school it's run out of Australia but it's kind of a global thing now online and it there's a bunch of people who do similar work. We work in the same ways, but we have sort of different areas of expertise and mm-hmm. we get each other. And I think the, the, the fitting in element is when there is, there's less walls, when there's less barriers to feel like you need to step over mm-hmm. because either people speak your language um, or they refer and reference things that you also refer to and, and reference as well. Like there's a, there's an affinity there. Like an and, uncommon commonality, you know? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I'd yeah. Love, what, what, about, what about you? Yeah, I'd love to take credit for that saying. I think that was from Adam Grant's uh, okay. Give and Take. But I, I remember hearing that, like the uncommon commonality behind yeah. 
things and it's yeah so true I guess where yeah yeah I guess I started to I started to feel like it because I was really interested in some of these I guess more more meditation type books and different like and understanding like the four hour work week by Tim Ferriss I I had a real drive to sort of do something by myself as well I think for a long time like with tennis and traveling and it was during one of these like it was the emerging leaders program Seth Godin ran I think it was and it was sort of facilitated by Taylor Harrington. And she uh-huh. brought together all these, I guess, yeah, all these young guys from like around the world, young guys and girls, but like interested in more like sort of the personal development or yeah. lots of areas and creativity and entrepreneurship. Definitely. Mm-hmm. And one of the, yeah, to be honest, I hadn't felt, I, didn't, I couldn't identify, I hadn't felt like I belonged to a group until I was in a group where I felt like I belonged, you know? And yeah, one of the questions that I that I love from it, because I was also very, like, I didn't feel like I, fun- I went through school and I managed to get through school, but I, I felt like I never, like, fit in within that system, like, at all. Like, yeah. I always, like, oh, I feel like I can learn more outside of school. Why, am, why do I have to go yep. to school? And-, and I think that there's some wisdom in that as well, though, Liam, because it's about recognizing, okay, school's not everything. And I think school has made out at the time to be this is the most crucial thing you will ever do mm-hmm. um, and you go it's five five years when I'm super young and as a percentage of my life it's bugger all and yet we put so much emphasis and so much pressure on on kids and look at look at entrepreneurs that we hold up um, as being business gurus and being trailblazers, most of them left school early or dropped out or, or started something going, this isn't for me because I'm in, I'm in a hurry, right? I've got bigger, better things to do. And actually school's going to hold me back, which is kind of what, what you're, you're talking about too, Liam. And mm. so, so they're people that don't fit in. Yeah. And yet people will now want to be like them. Here's another, another little, uh, a little gem that I love most of those people that we hold up as being the gurus, including like Elon Musk and Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Richard Branson. They're all neurodiverse. You mentioned Seth Godin. He's got ADHD. He loves his ADHD. He attributes his creativity to it. You know, and so, and, and so, and I kind of laugh. This will put off a lot of listeners here, especially people who are neurotypical, because we've got all these people who are trying to be like these gurus. They actually can't. You and I can, because we're neurodiverse, right? And so we have an element to the way we experience the world, which means actually entrepreneurship is custom built for us, even though as an entrepreneur, you custom build, you know, your, your own journey yeah. and your own path, but it, it suits us down to a, to a T. And yet these people sell all these books to people who cannot emulate them, right? It, or they can, but it's super hard because they have to act out of time. Whereas all we get to do is be ourselves and you're instantly at an advantage. And this is the advantage of neurodiversity. I'm not saying we're better, but I am saying we've got an advantage. We have been told we have a huge disadvantage and we do when it comes to those five years of high school, which help if you want to go down that lineal path. But if you want to do something that's a bit different, you know, don't, don't build high school or education as being um, absolutely everything. Now, caveat on that is I'm all for lifelong learning and I'm all for education and empowering people to get educated. I do think though, if there's a 
if if it is more work and it's more destructive to your mental health to try and fit in to an education system what's the alternative look for that find that seek that yeah mm-hmm. because nothing should be nothing should that you embark on should make you feel stink about yourself and and if education does that then so, something's got to give that's that's a bit of a bold statement but i reckon you know if mm-hmm. you got to take care of yourself and if you have to not fit in in order to take care of yourself then i reckon that's pretty cool mm. and then you'll find where you fit in sooner so, yeah, yeah that's right and see, seek out seek out those tribes where you do fit in and i reckon enjoy the ride of people going those people are a bit weird and you go that's all right because they're my people Mm -hmm. (laughs) because there's nothing wrong with weird nothing at all yeah like weird is relative as well because like how how do you define weird it's like it's Mm. different to you but everything can be different to you (laughs) yeah yeah so so one of the big ticket items in the neurodiversity camp is autism and a lot of people think there's a whole lot of social awkwardness with with autism and a lack of empathy but if you've ever seen two or more people with autism together, they 100% get each other. There's nothing weird, nothing weird between them. People on the outside go, oh, that's a bit strange or that's a bit socially awkward or whatever else. They don't care because they get each other. You know? And so you, you did right. Weird is, is relative. relative. It doesn't, it, wow, it doesn't that's a, matter. a brilliant example. Thank you. Yeah, awesome. I've noticed the time, Callum, I could keep talking to you forever and keep listening to you. But yeah, I've just... Yeah, I guess just towards the end, one final question would be, how do you sort of define community? How do you, how do you think about it? Mm-hmm. Community is, it's a group of people who have a common purpose. And I think that for me, I'm really excited by making a difference. So rather than a community that tries to retain the status quo, I think a community that tries to make things better for itself, but not necessarily exclusive to itself, like a community that makes, that works towards improving something for the greater good. I think that there's, I think it helps having that purpose behind it. Mm. Yeah. Oh man. So many, so many words buzzing around my head. I'd love to be able to split them out, but they wouldn't come out in a sentence, Liam. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, everyone I've spoken to has had a different definition of community. So, okay. Good. Yeah. yeah. What's the best one you've heard? I like that one of like wanting to disrupt or like not, not disrupt, but continue going past the status quo. I haven't heard yeah. that before. The one that I found interesting, yeah, common goals, group of people has been similar. I think. Also common interests is like another yep. way that people framed it. Yeah. I'm trying to think. I haven't like found one that's better. Like I've enjoyed yeah. listening to, yeah, the diverse perspectives on community itself. Well, it's, it suits the group, right? Whatever, like they come up with their own definition perhaps. Mm. And again, that doesn't matter. That can be weird and wacky or it can be really bland and, and boring. But if it suits mm. that group, then then go for it, right? I'm reminded of a lot of organizations that try to come up with a um, like vision statements and missions and that sort of thing. And they you just use a whole lot of buzzwords uh, mm-hmm. and it sounds good and it looks good on a poster, but it actually means very little to people. 
I was, I started my career in HR in the year 2000, just, just after the turn of the, the century. And one of the big buzzwords was organizations needed to have a 2020 vision. And so we got to 2020 last year, and I guarantee none of those visions looked like the 2020 we experienced, <laughs> right? No chance. Who, who thought of a pandemic 20 years earlier? And the disruption or the fact that everyone had to work from home and moved to working on online and sort of jumped forward using Zoom and Teams and Skype and whatever else five years in advance of when they probably would have naturally anyway. And so, you know, we go... Let's let's have a bunch of bunch of buzzwords as a mission to form our community around. And let's go. Actually, come up with whatever you want, but continually reflect and refresh it. And go. Does it still serve us? How are we working to this definition of community? Are we? Does this still make sense to us? What else would we add? What do we need to take away? Where have we done this really, really well? Where are we not sort of doing this so well? And does it matter? You know. And that's one of the big questions. Does it matter? And that's so I think sort of communities that are constantly reinventing themselves to keep up with their purpose is is quite a useful frame there as well. Epic. I think that could be a call to action. It's like anyone who's listening is trying to bring in a community or tribe, like how can you redefine it or like bring that in so can you constantly reflect and re redefine Mm -hmm. it? Because like everything else is fluid and changing. Hey, yeah. We want we want to bring some element of that to it. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's like um, so you write write a, write a book and you get everything get everything out and then by the time you publish it, you're entirely sick of it, right? But nobody else has read it, so who are you to um, deprive those people of stuff that you are now sick of? And it kind of it can be the same thing with a purpose for a community as well. We go, this is our purpose, until we go, oh no, it's not. It's like okay, well let's reinvent it, right? Mm. Um, let's look at that. Ag- look at that again you know is it is it still us so yeah the call to action is have have a look at why did you start the group that you're in or why did you join the group that you're in is it still fulfilling that purpose if not rather than dip out why don't you have a conversation about it like raise it as opposed to go ah it's no longer me well maybe you could contribute like it's like the people sitting around that board table the meeting or the workshop um too afraid to ask the question maybe lots of people are still uh, are sitting around that community group going i don't know if this serves me and so it just fizzles out and so there's wasted potential there because there's unfulfilled stuff like things we haven't done so yeah cool call to action review why are you part of the community what's the community about and what do you want to change start chop stop change continue all those things i'm done <laughs> <laughs> that's epic and then i guess just moving forward, I guess you, you're writing, you're in the process of writing your new book, Tilt. Where could someone find it or where do you want people to reach out if they want to? Well, I can't because it's changed. And what I'm going to do is make a Tilt box, which has a mini version of a book and a set of cards, which could be for leaders or for teams and that sort of thing. And so there's going to be, it's going to be a box full of value part of which is going to be the book as well so there's still that ethos of thinking differently about different thinking which is how do we think differently about those who think differently across the organization or within our our group or our community or our tribe and how do we harness that there's sort of three phases to it there's uncover unlock and unleash and so when that does come out it'll be available on my website which is callummccurdy.com and i've i've 
been working on a podcast as well uh, called You, Me and ADHD, and it's on Spotify and, and YouTube and Player FM and a few other things. Uh, but people can hit me up on LinkedIn. It's an easy place to connect um, or drop me a line via my email. It's just callum at callummccurdy.com or go through my website. So it's all pretty uh, straightforward. Anybody wants to get in touch would love to reach out and, and chat and discuss all these things. And look, I really appreciate you know, you taking uh, the time to put up with my waffle and ask some great questions and stump me and and, and connect and, and have a cool chat. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Callum. And thank you so much, everyone, for listening. I've taken, yeah, so much out of this.